Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I'm the director of Rare Book School. It's my great honor to welcome you to this, the second annual Rendell Endowed Lecture at Rare Book School. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Rendell Lecturers and a little bit about our august speaker. For more than 60 years, Ken Rendell has been the proprietor of an eponymous firm specializing in historical letters, documents, and manuscripts. Famous the world over for exposing such forgeries as the Hitler Diaries, Jack the Ripper's Diary, and the Mormon Forgeries, Ken has published and been interviewed extensively on these and many other topics related to collection development, World War II, Western Americana forgeries, and manuscripts. Ken Rendell has a long and distinguished history with Rare Book School. He was a founding supporter when the school was at Columbia University. He served on the board of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia from 2000 to 2009, and he has been a steadfast supporter of the school and its many educational initiatives over time. Ken Rendell and his wife, Shirley McInerney, have generously endowed this annual lecture on the central importance of original manuscripts and rare books to fostering human understanding. Each year, the Kenneth W. Rendell Endowed Lecture at Rare Book School focuses on the connections that rare books and manuscript collecting provide with people, events, and cultures of our past, our shared human history, and the intellectual thrill and emotional pleasures of collecting. This lecture series will, over time, spotlight the roles of collectors, librarians, and dealers, not only in preserving human history, but also in providing insights about our present commitments and our future aspirations. We are most happily indebted to Ken and Shirley for their vision and their largesse. Our speaker tonight, Walter Evans, is a real doctor. <laughs> Not the PhD kind, but the MD kind with a distinguished career as a general surgeon, having graduated from the University of Michigan Law uh, Medical School and completed his general surgery residency at Wayne State University. Following his residency, Dr. Evans began seriously collecting art, acquiring more than 300 major paintings and sculptures and thousands of cartoons and prints. His collection of rare books and manuscripts by and about African Americans is among the largest of its kind in the entire world, 
amounting more to more than 100,000 pieces. Between 1991 and 2007, some 80 works from his collection were part of a traveling exhibition that toured most of the United States, shown in more than 45 museums and university galleries. Dr. Evans has also loaned pieces of his collections uh, to a variety of places, including the home of Detroit's mayor, the offices of university presidents, and through the Art in Embassies program of the United States State Department in our American embassies in South Africa and in Switzerland. At the Savannah College of Art and Design Museum of Art, the Walter O. Evans Collection of African American Art has pride of place as one of the country's most important collections of African American visual art from the 18th century to the present. The collection has been exhibited at art museums around the country including the Memorial Art Gallery of the University of Rochester, at the Columbia Museum of Art in South Carolina, the T Tacoma Art Museum in Washington, and the Detroit Institute of Arts. Walter Evans's collection of Frederick Douglass manuscripts was the key to David Blight's Pulitzer Prize winning biography Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, and now constitutes the Walter Evans collection of Frederick Douglass and Frederick Douglass family papers at Yale University's Beinecke Library. We are thrilled to have Dr. Evans among us as our Rendell lecturer. Please join me in welcoming. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for that generous, very generous, more than generous invitation. And thank you for having me come here tonight. Um, eight o'clock in the morning on March the 8th, 2006, I attended a lecture by Professor Dr. David Blight from Yale University, historian there. And um, it was to some middle school uh, teachers and he was giving this lecture on the Civil War and on uh, Frederick Douglass. So after the lecture, I told him that I had a few Frederick Douglass papers, and I'd like him to see that. And I saw the expression on his face, ah, uh, here it goes again. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that evening, later that evening, um, after I went back home, I, um, I brought him to my home. This is in my dining room in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, I had made these, um, these archival boxes, and this is similar to what he saw on that day. I had been collecting for about 30 years at this time, and I had the Frederick Douglass material for about 20 years. Uh, when, I, uh, uh, when I acquired the, the Douglass collection, 
uh, it were in horrible conditions, so I first had to get it uh, conserved and then preserved by putting them in these boxes. And one rule that I had is that you could only open one box at a time. So we spent the remainder of the evening opening up these boxes, and I could see him on, now if, if David Blight was here tonight, this evening, he would tell you, I didn't decide to write that book right away. He decided to write that book that evening. <laughs> In fact, for the next 13 years, at least twice a year, uh, he would sit in this chair, right here. Uh, this point is, yeah, he would sit in this chair for about a week to 10 days, uh, twice a year for 13 days, and then the culmination of that time, he won the Pulitzer Prize for the, uh, for, for, uh, based mainly on, the, um, on this collection. And this collection was so different from the other collections of Frederick Douglass because it dealt a in large part on the latter third of his life. And Douglass, although he wrote three autobiographies, he never talked about his family. Uh, he talked about, you know, his wife, um, Anna Murray, helping him escape, and they got married. And that was the end of it. He never talked about his family. But in this collection, especially in the scrapbooks, um, he, um, he talked about, uh, uh, there were so many things in the, in the nine scrapbooks. And there were, there were uh, newspaper clippings from all over the country that his sons had uh, collected. What you see here are uh, booklets. Douglas would, uh, when he gave lectures, he gave lectures from typescripts, and there were type, these typescripts in this collection. And then he, um, many of them he would have published. So these are some of the publications that, uh, including this particular publication up here uh, on the 5th of July, this women's group in Rochester, uh, where he was living at the time, uh, asked him to speak on the 4th of July. He said, nope, what, is this, what to the slave is the 4th of July? And that was the focus of this, uh, of this. But here are some of the other uh, publications he did based on his speeches. Now, how did all, this all come about? Well, uh, first of all, I got to tell you that, uh, that uh, David didn't just come himself for those 13 years. He told so many other people, scholars. Uh, and researchers about this collection, and they came in droves. They were, we always had people coming down. This particular lady here, Celeste Marie Bernier, at the time she first visited me, she was at the University of uh, Nottingham in Nottingham, England, and by the time um, she published this book, she had, uh, she was uh, uh, head of the English department, uh, not head of the Department of African American History at, um, at the University of Edinburgh. And she published this book based almost entirely on the collection that we had. But now she has six other books coming out uh, on the Douglas family. Here are a couple of the other people who came by several times. This is Lee Fott. She's in Syracuse, Lemoyne University in Syracuse right now. And Rita Roberts. Rita Roberts was actually the only African-American person that came out of the droves that came by. And this is a book that recently came out based on uh, letters. And so the, most of the letters that she used from our collection were from Douglas's son to his wife. 
And here we are, David and I, uh, after, the, uh, after the Pulitzer Prize. Now, how did all this come about? <clears throat> well, I'm going to have to go back a few years. Um, after high school, I didn't go straight to college. I went into U.S. Navy for three years. My first year and a half was spent um, in San Diego, and then I was transferred to Philadelphia. My favorite aunt lived in Philadelphia, and a couple of days after I got to Philadelphia, she gave me um, a ticket to a church social. As soon as I went to that church social, I think it was on a, on a Friday evening, this young lady and I caught each other's eye, and um, uh, anyway, she wanted to go to the museum. At 19 years old at the time, I had never been in an art museum in my life, so I took her up on it. But I went to the library on the same street as this museum, Frank Douglas, Franklin um, <coughs> uh, Boulevard, and, um, and I went to the library and I said, what am I gonna see in this museum? This is the, Phil the museum here. And she said, see the French Impressionists. So I checked out a whole bunch of uh, French Impressionist books and Degas, Renoir, and um, Lautrec, and so on and so forth. And uh, we went to the museum. Um, uh, she didn't realize that I was a fake. Uh, <laughs> but I started telling her about Renoir. I said, do you know that Renoir, even um, uh, at a er kind of an early age, he had severe rheumatitis of his fingers, but he kept on painting. And Degas, you know, he spent time in New Orleans. And I just told her about all these artists that I had never heard of before. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, anyway, she was also a reader. She gave me a book on Richard Wright, Native Son. Uh, I read that and we discussed it and then I went through all the books on natives that uh, Richard Wright had written and she got me involved in reading the British, you know, Dickens and so on and the French and the Russians. And by the time I got to college a year and a half later, I was pretty well read. So we're gonna fast forward. Um, uh, our relationship broke off. I didn't see much of her after I went to D.C. to college at Howard University. So, uh, but four years later, um, after finishing college and finishing uh, my um, residency, eight years later, really, um, and uh, I started my practice, the Detroit Institute of Arts uh, published The Legend of John Brown. Uh, there, was, uh, there were 22 in this portfolio. And they um, commissioned uh, Jacob Lawrence to do this portfolio of 22 silk screens. They owned the originals, and the originals were too um, uh, fragile to travel. So um, someone asked me to buy it, and uh, I did. And that was my first, uh, I was not collecting at this time. However, this was in the late 70s. However, um, about a week or so later, I got a call from a colleague of mine in New York, Dr. Benny Prim, and he was giving this uh, reception and fundraiser for uh, Romare Bearden's wife dance studio. Nanette Bearden had a dance studio, and he asked me if I would come. So I went, and while there, I met uh, Bearden, I met Nanette, and uh, their, uh, his agent, June Kelly, and uh, his photographer. So after um, I came back, I asked, uh, in fact, even while I was in New York, I asked his agent 
in Bearden if I could do the same thing in Detroit? They said, oh yeah. So um, later, maybe a couple months later, in the fall of the same year, uh, I had a reception in my house and I, I brought over 300 people and it was a complete success. And I enjoyed, that's me as a much younger age, this Bearden over there, like if this pointer will work, this Bearden, and there I am at the head of the table. And we had people seated all over the, all over the house there for this reception. This was the beginning of inviting luminaries, artists or writers to my home in Detroit at least twice a year for the entire time that I lived in Detroit until we moved to Savannah in uh, 2001. So, Bearden and I on the streets of Detroit. Uh, Elizabeth Catlett came a few months later and I commissioned her to do um, a sculpture for me based on uh, black women poets. And this is at her house in Cuernavaca and she was halfway through this um, life-size sculpture. She, uh, Elizabeth Catlett had been to the University of Iowa with Margaret Walker Alexander and that's how we got the, uh, and here's the finished piece here. And this is another, um, this is pensive over here, a bronze piece. Now the next few slides I'm gonna rush through because this was during the 80s and the 90s and I was in New York or Chicago every other weekend and I was rushing at the time buying books and manuscripts and artwork. This is the card game by Jacob Lawrence. This uh, Archibald Motley, um, the, um, the Plotters, this is actually now in Cape Town, and it's gonna be at the Metropolitan Museum in February. They're doing a show in the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, this piece travels quite a bit. Uh, here is uh, Alma Thomas, and that's, um, uh, this, this is, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, this is Norman Lewis. Uh, James Welland Johnson and some of his works. Uh, <laughs> uh, Margaret Walker Alexander, and this is a reception for her, but look who showed up. Uh, I had some jealous people. Not everybody gets to have Rosa Parks in their house. Um, <clears throat> but Margaret Walker came many times, probably more than anyone else. She, she started calling me to ask me. She lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and she started calling me, can I come to uh, Detroit? I said, of course you can. Uh, this is Sterling Brown from D.C. He and I became very close friends. Uh, even though I was at Howard four years, I did not get a chance to meet him while I was there. Uh, he was in the English department. We became very close and I was taking him to the airport after he was staying with me. Most of these artists and writers came and stayed with me at my home. So sometimes I'd have to take off from work. Sometimes I'd continue working while they were there. But I took him to universities and um, public schools, uh, even elementary schools. He went to an elementary school uh, while he was there. So these are a couple of his. This is Langston Hughes. I never met him in person. Um, actually, we are, this, uh, Gordon Parks took the photo. And uh, uh, this is actually, we acquired the, at some time later, we acquired this, um, this, 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 this sculpture um, as well. Uh, 
Now, during the 80s, about the mid-80s, I discovered uh, what we call um, association copies of books. That is, when one luminary um, uh, inscribes a book to another luminary, and this, this particular book was inscribed by Langston Hughes to Duke Ellington. Here's another. I want to tell you a little bit about this. This is uh, inscribed by Nancy Kennard to um, Langston Hughes, and Langston Hughes uh, annotated the whole thing. But when I bought the book, not a single page was attached to the binding. So I had it completely redone. As you can see here, um, uh, this is a brand new binding, but they took the cloth off the original and uh, put it back on. I was very proud of that. I mean, the book wasn't usable at all um, as it was. And right now, I think I have hundreds of strong association copies. <clears throat> Here is uh, uh, Claude McKay. This is uh, a painting that uh, Aaron Douglas did in 1941 based on The Negro Speaks of River, which Langston Hughes did, and it was published in the Crisis Magazine in 1921. Langston Hughes, who was 18 years old, he was on the train going down from Cleveland where he graduated from high school to meet his father that he didn't know very well who was living in Mexico. Um, and uh, anyway, I was able to get the painting uh, that, uh, that Aaron, uh, Douglas had done. This is uh, Richard Wright um, in uh, Paris at the Luxembourg Gardens. Whenever I collected books, I tried to get everything that the, art, that the writer had done. And uh, it wasn't always easy, especially with Zora Neale Hurston here. Uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. <laughs> He, was, he died very, very young, but was quite prolific. Now, there was a lady today asked me, she was so excited that I knew Gwendolyn Brooks. I knew Gwendolyn Brooks very well. I invited her to Detroit at least three times. This is my wife at a reception we had for her in our home, and she's in my office, my home office there, signing copies of her books to some of the uh, uh, guests. Uh, no, the thing, Gwendolyn um, Brooks told me a story that when she went to talk, people would ask her, have you, do, do you know uh, Phyllis Wheatley? <laughs> Actually, this book um, is one of the earliest uh, works that I have, not the earliest, this is 1773. Um, here, a group of Harlem Renaissance uh, uh, artists. This is um, Anna Bontemps, the lower left. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, there is um, uh, Rudolph Fisher, the upper left, um, County Cullen, and uh, upper right, and uh, the lower right is, uh, is Ralph Ellison. I did not get to meet any of these, but I did know several members of Anna Bontemps' uh, uh, friends. Uh, 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 family, I mean, sorry. And here, this is a couple of women um, from the Harlem Renaissance, Jesse Fawcett and Nella Larson. Nella Larson is becoming so well known. These were, these were extremely uh, talented women during the Harlem Renaissance. In fact, Jesse Fawcett was an editor for the Crisis Magazine. I did get a chance to meet um, uh, Toni Morrison, didn't know her well. And I have several copies of The Blue is Eye. 
she herself did not have an original copy, and I wouldn't give her one of mine. <laughs> uh, this uh, is uh, an almanac, 19, uh, 1792 almanac by Benjamin Banneker, and I'm sure most of you know the relationship that uh, Benjamin Banneker had to Thomas, uh, Jeff Thomas Jefferson. Um, it was the first almanac that he sent to Thomas Jefferson along with a letter, I mean, uh, uh, criticizing his uh, uh, lack of, um, criticizing uh, the fact that he owned slaves and, and how he spoke down about the intelligence of, um, of uh, African Americans. And he sent them with a, uh, a copy of the first almanac which wasn't, uh, it was in the manuscript stage then, I, I think it was. Jefferson did answer him, by the way. Now, this may be the oldest um, or the earliest work that I have uh, by, uh, of African descent. And this is by Capitine, um, uh, by Jacobus Capitine. His, his story is very complicated. I won't go into it, but if you're interested, you can look him up. Uh, this is from uh, 1742. These are several slave narratives. Uh, I wish I had more. I have about 25. I don't know why I didn't get them. You know, Frederick Douglass, uh, there was Jermaine Logan, Henry um, uh, Box Brown, J uh, William Wells Brown, and more. So I have about 25, but I should have had much more. I, don't, I have no idea why I didn't get more at the time. Uh, <clears throat> I have met Baldwin, did not know him well. However, um, we have uh, quite a few letters. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about those. Um, I have all of his books, of course. At some time doing, um, um, the, doing my um, collecting career, I shall say, advocation, uh, I went out to meet Jacob Lawrence. And this is when he was uh, living at his home. This is up in his studio. I took this photograph myself. I took my twin daughters out to meet him. And we got to be very, very close. Um, uh, you, t you heard about the exhibition that we uh, established. And Jacob Lawrence, um, this is a painting, an image from his Genesis series. He, he did an oversized book on the book of Genesis, and there were eight paintings. I actually have the original paintings from that uh, that he did for the Genesis. Uh, I commissioned uh, many, many of these um, artists. This, these are two commissions from, uh, by Richard Hunt. This is at the reception at my home. That's Richard Hunt uh, uh, standing right there. And uh, this is, well, we won't. <laughs> anyway, um, 19th century artists. In the beginning, I did not collect 19th century artists for the uh, uh, only reason is that um, is that they rarely, if ever, painted figures, the African-American figures. Usually they sculpted or painted um, um, uh, white Americans, uh, landscapes, or uh, still lifes. And this is Mary Edmonia Lewis. Most of her career was spent in Rome, but she was born in uh, upstate New York. Quite a story she had. Henry Tanner was may be called the dean of African-American artists, spent most of his career in, um, in Paris. One of the few that had formal training, he was trained at uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, 
under Thomas Aikens for two years, 1880 to 1882, but couldn't find work here, so he went to Paris. That painting that I showed you, this painting was actually done. He caught typhoid fever in, in France and came back to the U.S. Uh, to recover, and that painting, his father was having a, a conclave down. He was a Methodist minister, and they were in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. One of the um, best-known 19th century artists uh, was this uh, was Duncanson, Robert S. Duncanson. I want to spend a little bit of time telling you about this gentleman between my wife Linda and myself. Um, this is uh, Oliver Harrington, a cartoonist. Uh, Ollie Harrington was run out of the country by Eugene McCarthy in, uh, in 1951. And uh, I found out that he was living in Berlin. Well, he moved to Berlin after his very close friend Richard Wright died. And he stayed in Berlin until uh, I sent him a letter and asked him if he would come back to the US. This is the first time he'd ever come back to the US. So actually this friend of mine who was a cartoonist also came back and said, I saw Ollie Harrington. I didn't think he was still alive. And she gave me his address, wrote him. He said, of course. I told him I would take care of all of his experiences, his accommodation, everything. Actually brought him back three times. Not only that, these, the, he, he, uh, while he was in the US, uh, before he went to Europe, and really after he was in um, Paris, he sent cartoons back to the African-American press. The New York Amsterdam News, the Pittsburgh Courier, um, the Baltimore Afro-American, et cetera. And his, um, uh, Bootsy uh, was the, his main character. Of course, when he got to Berlin, he started his, his um, most of his cartoons dealt with, the, uh, with fascism and anti-fascism. In fact, I was hoping a young lady who's a po doing a postdoc here at the University of Michigan was going to be here tonight, but she's out of town and she's doing work uh, on the anti-fascism aspect of Ollie Harrington. And here's another one of his cartoons. Now, when he was here on the third trip that I brought him over, uh, Margaret Walker Alexander wanted to meet him. They had a common friend, Richard Wright. And I said, okay, let's do an exhibition of his work. So we did at Jackson State University. And uh, oh, they were so happy. I took this photo, by the way. Uh, but the remarkable thing about it is while we were down there, um, Margaret Walker lives on the street that Mega Evers was assassinated on. It's now called Margaret Walker Alexander Drive in Jackson. But it was the same street. But while we were down there, uh, Byron De La Beckwith, uh, who assassinated Megger Evers was convicted and it was printed up on the paper while we were down in Jackson. That was so coincidental. These three letters uh, are by, in, in the handwriting of John Brown. One of these two I purchased from Rendell, Rendell uh, Gallery. I can't tell you which one. I have to look in my files, which I didn't do. But these are all in the uh, handwriting of John Brown. Uh, these are Mal uh, Malcolm X letters. I have perhaps 100 of Malcolm X letters. The lower one here, uh, he wrote not too long before he was assassinated. Uh, this he wrote to um, uh, Jimmy Booker, who was the editor and publisher of the New York Amsterdam News. 
and I, I acquired this. Many times when I acquired letters, uh, I got them from one or two or three different sources. This came, my letters of Malcolm X came from many, many sources. Uh, this one here, as I mentioned, came. This letter up here was written when he was in prison in, in Massachusetts, and he wrote it to someone else who was in prison. And that's why I stamped here, you know, um, coming from one prison to another. But I have so many letters written to family members, to ministers, to musicians, um, while he was in prison and beyond. This, these are letters from Tucson L'Overture. Um, I have about 20 letters that L'Overture wrote in the 1790s and early 1800s. Uh, this is by John Jacques uh, Desalines, first uh, emperor of Haiti after Toussaint was captured uh, by Napoleon's uh, brother-in-law and sent to Paris and he died, I mean sent to France and he died. This is a letter Napoleon wrote to uh, Toussaint and, uh, in 1801. Uh, this is going to be at an exhibition at the Pantheon in, in, uh, in Paris opening up on November 8th, along with a few of the other letters. Now, I don't want you people to judge, um, to judge Mr. Bearden here, but I knew that Bearden, uh, please don't judge him or be the jury, but I knew that Bearden, from the first day that I met him, had a mistress. His wife knew it, and a few other people knew it. And I knew it because uh, the photographer here and I became very close friends, but I met him, Frank Stewart, at the very same time I met Bearden in New York. And uh, after Bearden uh, passed in 88, and then his wife passed a few months later, I went to see her. And I went to see her to buy some of the art that Bearden had given her. And she told me no, she wasn't gonna sell it to me. Uh, so I had never met her before that. I didn't, meet, I didn't meet her. They dated during the entire 1970s, and she broke it off. She married um, Luther Henderson, who was a very famous musician. Now, Frank took this, this photograph in the home of Albert Murray, and that's significant because, um, oh, by the way, it took me six years of courting her. Going up, every time I went to New York, I would take her out to plays, I would take her to dinner, I would take her to lunch, I would take her to receptions and, and parties and everything. It took me six years and she finally sold me a pile of letters this, this thick that were illustrated. I'll show you a couple of them. In that apartment, Albert Murray's apartment, on the balcony there, overlooking some other buildings in Harlem, is where he got the inspiration to create one of his most famous uh, uh, pieces of art. This is called the Block Two. The Block One is at the Metropolitan. But these, this is one of the letters here on the left that he wrote to Billy, and there are so many, and there are so many illustrated. Uh, this is one, the illustration here in, in one of the many, many, many letters. And this is one that he wrote to me, that Bearden wrote to me. They were quite different now, um, uh, as you might imagine. But, uh, but anyway, we corresponded a lot. I would write letters to these artists and these, uh, sometimes 
just so I could get answers. And I have so many thousands and thousands of letters from these artists and writers now. Now, this is the Kenneth W. Rindell lecture, is it not? Well, in uh, 1995, Mr. Rindell sent me this book as a gift, and I read it. Now, I'm going to read you, this is from the first, this is from the very first, um, uh, what should I call, um, chapter in the book. I'm going to read it from here. There's also some impalpable quality in a great man's handwriting which draws one to it. People who have never dreamed of collecting, uh, uh, who have heard, who have never heard of the collection mania will sub suddenly react to old letters and documents. They are mad to own them. Some human attraction exists uh, in the written word, quite different from the appeal made by printing. This appeal primarily is primarily emotional. Especially this is true of autograph letters. They naturally hold more, uh, a more personal message in that they interpret the spirit and reflect on the period uh, of the writer who in informal letters is off his guard, quite unlike the mood that an author brings to his work when he knows it may be published. It was almost as though Mr. Rendell was in my head and printed exactly what I would have written if I knew how to write like he did. Uh, and I'm gonna borrow a, a phrase from the, the play Hamilton. He was in the room when it happened. I mean, he was in my head and he wrote exactly. But my reason for collecting goes a little bit further. This is um, the collection, this uh, announces the collection of Baldwin letters that I collected, uh, and they're now at, at the Beinecke at Yale. This, I think, announces the uh, Beine collection, uh, the Douglas collection of the Douglas papers, which is now online, and the, the uh, Baldwin letters also online, you can get them, they're digitized. This is from an exhibition that we had at the Cabron Lee in Paris. We loaned 125 books, artworks, manuscripts, et cetera. It was a huge exhibition, by the way, in Paris. This is from the uh, National Library of Scotland of um, the Douglas Papers. This is at the uh, National Gallery of Art now, this is the first time the National Library, um, this is the library of the National Gallery, and this is the first time they had used an outside work, um, uh, an outsider's uh, material. Not speaking about the gallery now, just the library at the National Gallery. And this was at uh, announcing the uh, Douglas exhibition then. So with me, it's more than just, um, uh, the mania and the thrill and the emotional uh, impact that I get from collecting the letters, but it's in assimilating this material and sharing it with others. Uh, I mean, I get such a thrill. I'm not an expert on any of these people, I'm gonna tell you, uh, but I just love reading about them and, and sharing what I have collected with others.
and I'll take any questions that you might have. Thank you for listening. Thank you, thank you. How trusting are you? I mean, you see stuff all over the planet. I mean, you hire guards to go after with it, or I mean, it's insured. But you know something? It's not like a patient that I operated on. I mean, if I lose it, I lose it. That's my attitude. But now, things, some of the artwork um, at the uh, Delaware Museum of Art in Wilmington, uh, we had a sculpture by Richard Hunt, and uh, there was an arm on it that somebody's coat got stuck in it and it came off. Well, they called Richard Hunt and he welded it back together. And it didn't bother me at all. In, um, in Tampa, Florida, um, a kid went and put crayon all over a Henry O. Tanner painting, the same painting that you saw here. They had it cleaned. And even if a fire had burned it up, I mean, it's not a person. It's a thing. I would have been saddened, but, um, and things have been lost. Fortunately, um, um, you know, they've found everything. I don't think I've really lost, you know, completely everything. But uh, things have been lost that they couldn't find. Uh, it, we had an exhibition in uh, the Netherlands a few years just before the pandemic, and they couldn't find this um, uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. And I said, oh, it's there. And we were able to prove that, you know, we had photographs uh, by the courier that went over with the material. And uh, eventually they found it. We, we could prove that it had gone to the museum, uh, and uh, they were able to uh, locate it. But I don't get worried about those type of things, because uh, you know, if I'm operating and, and a blood vessel gets you know, interrupted or whatever, and it shoots up to the ceiling in the operating room, I get worried. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why I'm not practicing. I've, I haven't practiced in 22 years. So anyway, I hope I answered you. Knew him well. <laughs> I have a Jacob Lawrence expert in our audience now. <laughs> uh, but uh, oh, he was—he was such a wonderful person. Uh, I know you want more than that. But he, uh, his work, really—I um, mean, he—he he put everything into his work. He—he um, he painted a lot of series, and uh, you know, did narratives of the. Of, the sub, of his subject matter and so much of it. And I served on the Catalog Resonate project and he, he called me personally. This is after I had known him quite some time and asked me if I would serve on the uh, uh, staff. I was treasurer for the uh, Catalog Resonate project. Uh, it's such an incredible uh, human being. And he asked me if I would be um, uh, president of his foundation afterwards. So he died in 2000. Uh, we started the foundation, I think, in 99. And um, I served as president until about a month ago. And my uh, wife is now president. <laughs> but I, I know I haven't answered your question because uh, uh, he was just such an incredible person and we can go on and on. And I love being in his presence. Yes, Barbara. 
question, Edward, take you to the design of these books. So we have black artists who are designing those book jackets or illustrations that attract you. And um, tell me, I'm very curious to learn if you learned about any black book artists doing black jacket work, for example, or book design. Uh, no, I never did. I never did meet the, I, I, I met illustrators, but not, you know, the artists, but not for the, not for the design of the covers, never. Mm -hmm. They have to come to me, and they have to want it. I don't, um, um, and, and a lot of times when, they, when some of these institutions find that I have gifted um, uh, works of art or these papers, Douglas, a lot of times, then I get, uh, why did you, you know, gift it to them or whatever? Well, you never asked me, um, you know. So, no, they have to come to me and want it. And then there are very few for instance, uh, SCAD stayed on me. Um, you know, we gifted over 70 major works of art to them, and they stayed on me. And all, all I said was, this is all artwork now. I said, well, you must create a, a center for African-American studies. You must have uh, uh, children, uh, school children come in for free. And it was one other, you know, similar, you know, condition that I made. And I said, you can have this art. And they did all that I, one, oh, you had to have a, um, uh, a designated place to show it. But I didn't want them to show it all the time. And they haven't, but they will include you know, works of art and they'll have contemporary artists come in. Now I can't, I don't have the wherewithal now to invite a lot of, um, and this is going to something beyond your question. I don't have the wherewithal now to invite these people to town the way I used to, these writers and, and artists. But SCAD is doing it now, and I get to meet these young contemporary artists, and it's amazing. So it's, it's evolved. Yes, sir? Where did you get your Douglas material from? Oh, now that's a story. That is a story. Uh, basically in two large tranches, but, uh, but a few dealers, I got pieces from a few other dealers, for instance, uh, antiquarian bookshops and stuff. Uh, I can think of one, the Argosy in New York. But the major two tranches came, <laughs> this is quite a story that I told earlier today to someone. All these antiquarian book dealers knew who I was and they would call me when they had something before they put it in their catalogs. Well, one day I was in my office and I saw a catalog and I saw all this Douglas material uh, listed. And I called him, it was Phil McBlain, he's still in business by the way, he's in Hamden, Connecticut, right? In New Haven, essentially. And I called him, I said, Phil, I said, you didn't call me to, you know, about this Douglas material. He said, I don't want you to have it. I said, what do you mean? He said, I wanted to go to Yale. I said, Yale is not gonna pay you 10 cents for that. This, this is true, I'm telling you, everything that I'm telling you is exactly like it happened. He said, well, I'm gonna try to get him to take it. And at that time, these, these, um, archive, these archives and major institutions, they weren't buying it. They wanted people to give it to them, and which they eventually got, as you know. <laughs> but 
I said, I'm going to send you.